get your Bibles open to the Old Testament book of Haggai. Say, where is Haggai? It's right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Say, where is Zephaniah and Zechariah? It's right before Malachi. Say, where's Malachi? Use the index, all right? It's there for you. Open up. It tells you where it's at. But Haggai is uh, what we're going to look at this morning. It's just three chapters, three books back from Matthew. So if you find Matthew, just keep turning, you know, backwards until you find Haggai. It's a very short book, so it's very easy to miss. It's only two chapters, and uh, we're going to look at the whole thing this morning because it's, it's only two chapters. So as we continue through the Bible, where we come to the book of Haggai, and Haggai is what is known as one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. But it's, a, it's important to understand that these books that we're looking at, Haggai, Malachi, all these books... Uh, that are called the minor prophets. They're not called minor prophets because they're insignificant. They're called the minor prophets because they're short. So Haggai was a prophet to the restored remnant in Jerusalem uh, who were sent there, who came from Babylon after the captivity to rebuild the temple of God. Now Haggai and Zechariah they prophesied to the same people in the same place about the same thing. And so I want to catch you up to where we're at because I know last week we looked at, at Jonah who had no historical uh, relevance to the Bible, but it's just a great story we need to look at. So during this time, of course, Israel had been conquered by the Assyrian nation. Now remember, long, long before this happened, the nation was divided up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, known as Israel, uh, was led by wicked king after wicked king, and they were conquered by the Assyrian army long before the southern kingdom, or Judah, was conquered by Assyria. But eventually Assyria comes down. They defeat Judah and conquer the southern kingdom, but they let them stay there. They put in kind of provost kings to rule the area, and these kings are subject to Assyria. So they're still living in Jerusalem. They're still worshiping in the temple. They're still, you know, they're still home, even though they're subjects of the Assyrian government. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come in. They destroy the Assyrian government. They come down and destroy Jerusalem and conquer Jerusalem. And in the conquering of Jerusalem, they destroy the walls. They destroy the city. They destroy the temple. They take all the, the objects of worship in the temple. Because remember, the temple was of a spectacular monument to God's glory. And there was a lot of gold in the temple. The walls were overlaid with gold. There was a pool of gold uh, that reflected and was just showed the glory of God. All the instruments of worship, the, the, the lampstand, the altar, all these things were overlaid with gold. So when the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple, they take all the gold with them. They take everything back to Babylon and they also, the first time, they take all the princes and all the royalty of Jerusalem back with them to Babylon as slaves. This is when Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken away captive. Uh, they're put into the, they're made eunuchs and put into the government of Babylon to serve the Babylonians. And the reason the Babylonians did this was when they conquered a place, they would take away the leadership. And that way, the people left couldn't 
rise up and rebel against them. They had no leaders. Well, several years later, Babylon goes back to Jerusalem and attacks it a second time. And this time, they take all the gold that they left the first time. They really destroy the temple. And they take all the able-bodied people back to Jerusalem, back to Babylon. So the only people left in in Jerusalem are the disabled and the elderly. And the city is destroyed. Well, eventually... The Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Persian Empire. King Cyrus comes in, he defeats the Babylonians, he takes over the Babylonian Empire, and that includes Jerusalem. That includes Israel. But about 20 years after they conquer uh, Babylon, so it's been about 70 years since Jerusalem has been destroyed and since they've been led away captive, King Cyrus allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Their their government was set up a lot like the Assyrian government where they didn't want to take everyone captive and have them in one place. They would allow them to live in their hometown and live in their cities and have their kings and their rulers. But all these kings and rulers were subject to the Persian Empire. So it was a provost government. But he allows Israel to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And we saw two weeks ago where 50,000 Israelites leave Babylon. They walk for four months to get back home to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, for three months, they sit down and do nothing. But they're not just being lazy or, you know, just just not doing anything. They They are contemplating the grace of God for bringing them back home. Then on the holiest month of the year, they set up the altar, they offer sacrifices to God, and they worship for 30 days. Then... They begin the work of rebuilding the temple. They start laying the foundation for the temple of God. And the work goes on steadily for nine months. And then they quit. And they quit for 18 years. For 18 years, nothing happens to the temple of God. The foundation is laid, but now it's, it's overgrown. It's, it's starting to crumble again. It's, not in, it's in disarray. The stones that they had, they had gathered, they gathered, even before they started laying the foundation, they gathered all these stones and all this lumber to build the temple of God. And all that material that they had gathered has been taken. And they're using it to build their own houses. And so 18 years after the work was begun under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, Zerubbabel, he is the, he's called the governor of Jerusalem. He is in the, the kingly lineage of David. He is a descendant of David. So he is the acting king of Jerusalem. And Joshua is the high priest. And so 18 years after they come back and they start laying the foundation and beginning the work of God, they've stopped and Nothing is going, and so God sends two prophets to Jerusalem. He sends Haggai and Zechariah to not help build the temple, but to encourage them to get started on the work. And the way that Haggai, the way he motivates the Israelites and the leaders to build the temple of God, 
has some powerful applications for us today. It shows us how we are to build God's church. Now, when I say the church, I don't mean this. I don't mean the building. I don't mean the property. I don't mean the sanctuary. This is not God's church. It is God's church, don't get me wrong. But this is not the church of God. We're the church of God. We are God's church. His children. Believers who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. See, Jesus tells in the New Testament that the temple of God doesn't sit in a place anymore. We are the temple of God. We are the residing place of God. So it shows us how we're to build the church today. In Haggai, he gives four messages to the people. And in his messages, he's not really telling them what to do so much as he's showing them what they are doing wrong and how they were serving God. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what they did wrong and how they were serving God and working for God and building God's church and see if we're making the same mistakes today in our church, if we're doing the same thing. So here's the first thing that he told them they were doing. Number one, they were neglecting the work of God. The first message that Haggai gives when he shows up, it tells why they had neglected the work of God. Because they were more concerned about their houses than they were God's house. But it goes deeper than that. They were more concerned about their lives, their happiness, their joy than they were about doing anything for God. Look at verse number uh, three in chapter one. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye that dwell in your siled houses and houses, and this house lies, uh, sealed houses, and this house lies waste? Here's what he goes, look, is, is it really time for you to be worried about your house and build your house when the house of God is still laying in waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into the bag with whole. So here's, here's what Haggai is saying. During this time in the history of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, these people, this remnant who had returned, they were living lives of frustration. They were sowing in the fields. They were going out and they were planting uh, vegetables and they were planting grain. And they were planting vineyards, but they weren't getting what they needed. The, the yield wasn't nearly enough to take care of them because you've planted, but you're hungry. You don't have any food. You're eating a little bit, but it's not, it's not filling you. Yeah, you've, you've got a little bit to drink, but it's not satisfying you. See, they were, even though they were home, even though they were back in Jerusalem where they wanted to be and where they, they needed to be, they still weren't happy. They still weren't satisfied. They still didn't have enough. They were suffering with famine. They were suffering with drought. They were suffering with pestilence all during this time. And so Haggai, he asked them, he goes, look, 
You've spent 18 years focused on yourself. What has it done for you? Are you, are you happy now? Are you satisfied now? Are you fulfilled now? Or are you still frustrated? You're still struggling. You're still battling these things. And so Haggai is telling them that to them, their homes and their lives were more important than their walk with God, than their service for God. And what they're doing is rebellion. And rebellion is what got them in this, this situation in the first place. They rebelled against God. They served false idols. And so God allowed Babylon to come in and take them away captive. And now they're home, but they're still rebelling against God. So God's not blessing them. God's not allowing the crops to grow. God's not allowing the rain to come. God's not allowing joy to come to them because, yeah, they're home, but they're still rebelling against God. That's why they are struggling. That's why they are suffering. That's why they can't find joy and fulfillment. They are focused on themselves instead of focusing on their relationship with God. And that never works out for the child of God. We were created to worship God. We were redeemed to serve God. We were redeemed to build his kingdom, not ours. We were, build, we were redeemed to serve God and glorify God and magnify God, not serve ourselves, not glorify ourselves, not try to magnify ourselves. That never brings fulfillment to the child of God. When we are created to worship and serve, but when you spend your life seeking your own comfort, you're going to live a life of guilt and frustration. If we focus on building our homes, our lives, our kingdoms, and we neglect our walk with God, we end up living pointless lives. If we focus on ourselves, instead of the service that God has called us to be a part of in his kingdom, then we're never going to be satisfied. See, our focus isn't to be on our glory, but God's glory. Look what Haggai's solution to their pointless lives is in verse number eight. <clears throat> he says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Now, here's what Haggai is saying. He goes, look, if you'll stop focus on your own self and your own homes and your own lives and you'll, you'll go get some more materials and you'll build God's house, then God will be glorified. Look, God wasn't concerned with having a nice home to live in. God wasn't concerned with an elaborate temple that people could look to and, and just be, you know, be in awe about how beautiful it is. He was concerned, he, he was concerned that the people were, were more concerned with, his, with their glory than they were with his glory. He says, you're more focused that your house looks good and people talk about how great you are than you're concerned about people being, be, bringing me glory and people being drawn to me. You know, both then and now, the problem isn't a neglect of a building. The problem isn't the neglect of a property. The problem is an indifference to the glory of God. 
See, the temple in the Old Testament, it existed for the glory of God. It was where God resided, where the presence of God was, where people could come and not, mag not, not glory about being uh, in awe about how beautiful the temple was or how beautiful the building was, but be in awe about how wonderful God was. They could glorify God at the temple. See, the church today exists for the glory of God. We exist for God's glory and God's kingdom. And when we don't care about the spiritual growth of God's children, when we don't care about God's kingdom being expanded to the lost and dying world, to the, the rejected and disenfranchised in our society. When we don't care about that, it's a sign of our failure to love the glory of God. When we don't care about the needy and the hurting around us, it shows we don't care about the glory of God. When we don't want the discarded and disenfranchised worshiping with us because they don't look like us or act like us or talk like us or smell like us. It, it shows we don't care about God's glory. When we don't care about God's glory, we live frustrated lives. And God tells us when we seek our own life, we're going to lose it. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, look, if you're, if you're focused on your own life, and doing stuff for you and trying to build your kingdom, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my kingdom, then you'll find it. He's not talking about an actual life. He's talking about a life that matters. He's talking about a life that brings fulfillment and joy and lasts, something that lasts for longer than, what we're he, than our time on earth. You know, verse 9, it sums up the situation in Jerusalem. Look at verse number 9. It says, you looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house that is in waste, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. God says, you, you try to get all this stuff, you try to gather, and when, you, when you're looking for a lot, you don't get very much, and when you do get a little bit and you bring it home, I, I blow and it goes away. It's wasted. You are frustrated constantly because you're more concerned about your kingdom than my kingdom. They were so focused on themselves that they lived empty, pointless lives. After hearing this, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, they obey and start working on the temple of God. They give up working on their houses. And look, the point is, they've been building their houses for 18 years. Now, I know they didn't have the same technology that we have today. They didn't have, you know, skill saws and miter saws and, you know, table saws. And they had to do everything by hand. I understand that. But it doesn't take 18 years to build a house, even back then. It didn't take 18 years to put a roof over your family's head where you could survive. And that's what God, God would have been fine if they were like, hey, we're going to take a month and we're just going to build our houses and make sure our families are provided for, make sure we're protected from the elephants. We're going to do that. And then we'll get back to work. God would have been fine with that. But they had completely abandoned his work and they were building their houses and they were making these elaborate 
just intricate houses for themselves. And God says, you're, you're spending so much time working on your own stuff that my kingdom is going to waste and you're going to live a pointless life. And so after 18 years of neglect and frustration, they get back to work because they had learned that seeking God's kingdom first was the only way to true fulfillment. It's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He says, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things, all what things? All the things we spend all of our time worried about. Money and, and possessions and prestige and, and power and all these things we, we focus so much on. God says, seek my kingdom first. Build my kingdom first, and I'll take care of everything else you need. I'll provide everything. Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So what were they doing wrong? They were neglecting the work of God. second thing they were doing was they were resenting the provision of God. So chapter 1 ends, and chapter 2 begins, and Haggai, he, he delivers this message they get to work, and he leaves. He comes back a month later to check on the work and to see how things are going. And just like before, the work had stopped. They got going real good, man. They were on fire for God. They were going to start doing real good. He leaves. He comes back a month later, and they're not working anymore. But why did it stop this time? Look at verse number 3 in chapter 2. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as if, it, as, as if nothing? So here's what, what was going on. They, build, they, they get to work. They start rebuilding the temple. And there are people there who remember Solomon's temple. Who remember the magnificence of Solomon's temple and how, how big it was and how grand it was. And it's made out of marble and it's, it's coated in gold and it's just it's this huge, magnificent thing. What they're building is nowhere near that. They don't have the, the resources, first of all. You know, Solomon was a king, and he, he got gold and, and lumber and stones from all over the nation. And, man, he had saved up and had a huge storehouse of resources to use to build the temple. So the temple was this massive construction project with a lot of money behind it and a lot of people building it. More than 50,000 had millions of people building this wonderful, magnificent temple. Now it's, you know... 50,000 people, but still, they're not all building, so it's just a, you know, a couple thousand people. They don't have a lot of, they have no money. They have no resources. They're having to kind of scrap together stuff to build this temple, and so they start building the temple, and they realize this is going to be nothing like it used to be. It's not even going to be, it's not going to be as big. It's not going to be as elaborate. It's not going to have as much fancy stuff in it. This is Compared to what it used to be, this is pathetic. You know, they had, a, they had a mansion, and now they're building a shack. And they get discouraged. And so they, they give up. It would never look like it had before. It would never be the same. So they, they give up. Look what happens in verse number four. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people in the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. See, what, what Haggai says is he goes, look, yeah, what you're doing is never going to be as nice as what Solomon did. It's not going to be as big. It's not going to be as grand. It's not going to have all the, the features. Yeah, you had this great, huge mansion with indoor pool and, you know, wall-to-wall Wi-Fi, and now you're having a woodshed. And yeah, it's, it's not going to be as nice, but it doesn't matter because God is going to be there. And that's the only thing that matters. Doesn't matter how big the building is, all that matters is who resides in the building. So they still remembered how glorious the temple used to be. And the temple, it was the apple of God's eye. It was, it was a magnificent, wonderful thing that people from all over the world would come to and marvel at because they heard of its splendor. They heard of its glory. They heard about how wonderful it was. It was the center of the worship for the Jews. But instead of being excited about rebuilding the temple, they are rebuilding the place where God will reside, where the presence of God will be, where they can come and worship God. Instead of being excited about rebuilding it, the memory of what it used to be discouraged them. They felt hopeless. They couldn't match the glory of the old temple so why keep going? Why keep building it? They, they got along fine in Babylon without it. They had, you know, over 70, you know, now it's been 90 years. They've, they've had without the temple. And they got along fine without it. So they'll just keep worshiping God without having the temple and they'll be okay. The memory of something great was more important to them than something that didn't meet their expectations. And look, it's very easy for us to feel the same way. We work and work and work and we don't seem to be getting anywhere. We pour our lives into something week after week, month after month, and the fruit we see, it's not enough to keep us going. So we get discouraged and we give up. Or we, we see how other churches are doing, how other ministries are doing. And now they're doing what we want to do. And so we get discouraged and we give up. Now, look, you may be saying, well, I never felt that way, preacher. I have. And if you haven't, then you haven't tried to serve God enough. But I have, especially now. I mean, look, we just went through one of the worst years or two years in the history of the world. And we... Things have changed. People have left church. And I can look and say, well, you know, people, people got out because of the pandemic and they'll probably never be back. But then I look at other churches and think, but they're, they're doing pretty good. You know, they're, they're thriving. Why, why are we? Or how come I tried this ministry? And I'll be honest, look, all right. Here, I'm getting on a rabbit trail, but I'm going to talk to you men. All right? You men frustrate the fire out of me. Let me be honest with you. You guys irritate me to no end. You guys make me want to quit. You know why? Because April will have a ladies' fellowship where they're not, I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're planting seeds in bowls, 
She'll have 90 people show up. I'll do everything I can for a men's fellowship, whatever you got. I mean, we'll go, hey, we're going to have horses over here. We're going we're gonna to have a, a carnival show. and We're going to have guns and all kinds of stuff. We're going to do all this stuff. And I'll, I'll try anything for you guys. And nobody shows up. That's discouraging to me. That's frustrating. You guys irritate me. Make me want to quit. Let's pray. No. But it's easy to get frustrated and say, I'm going to give up. And see, Look, I can even justify it and say, well, you know, this isn't how our guys are. And I understand, men are different than women. I get that. Women can get together and, you know, we say, well, women like to get together and talk. And, you know, they, they, they do, you know, we like to talk too, guys. We gossip all the time. We don't gossip. Yes, we do. Now, our gossip may be about sports teams or coaches or whatever. But we still like to get together and have fun. But it's, it's a, you can do stuff and it doesn't work out. And so you get, you get frustrated. I felt that way in my ministry in the walk with God. So, what does Haggai say to encourage them? Look at verse 5. According to the word thy covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear you the Lord. So here's what, here's what Haggai says. He goes, look, the work you're doing, it's, it's, it may not look as important as the old temple, it may not look as magnificent as it used to be, but it's still just as important. Because yes, God, his presence existed in the old temple. In all of its glory, in all of its majesty, in all of its size, God's presence resided there. But his presence is still going to reside in this temple. I mean, how big it is. I mean, how glorious it is, it's still going to reside in the temple of God. So he says, so be strong, be courageous, and get busy because I am with you. See, the success of our work for God, our service for God, it isn't measured by how successful we used to be or how successful other people seem to be. It's measured by the fact that God is there with us. And when you are serving God and God is there with you, nothing you do is small. Nothing you do is insignificant. If we ask him and we trust him, then God only works with us, but he moves in to stir up our spirit and give us a heart for the work of God. See, God doesn't want people to serve him because they have to. He wants free and joyful laborers, so he promises to be with them and stir them up to love the work. Look at verse number six. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And this place will I give peace, says the Lord of hosts. See, God says, God tells him, says, look, get, be courageous Get busy and do the work because you are building more than you even see. He tells them, look, this, this house that you're building, it's going to be better than the temple of Solomon. And eventually it was. 
Now, when they finished it, it wasn't anywhere near what it used to be. But then Herod takes over and he rebuilds the temple to even bigger than Solomon had built it and redoes all the gold. And it's just, it's so much better than it ever was in Solomon's day. But that's not really what God's talking about here. He is telling them, look, what you're doing is more important than building a, a building. You're building the kingdom of God. And one day on this site, God tells them, I'm going to build a temple that's going to outshine anything that man's ever made. He's talking about the day that he sets up his kingdom and he remakes the earth and he, he sets up his throne in Jerusalem. And look, when even during the millennial reign of Jesus, we're not going to get into all this eschatology stuff in the end times because it's, we're going to get into it eventually, but not today because we ain't got time for all that. But quick synopsis, rapture happens, seven years of tribulation, thousand year reign of Christ. During the thousand year reign of Christ, you know who's sitting on the throne of David? Jesus. How magnificent do you think temple's going to be when Jesus himself is sitting on the throne in there? It's going to be incredible. So he says, the temple I'm going to build, that you're building, is going to be even better. But then, you know, we got the, the whole tribulation war and all that stuff, and he destroys the earth and makes a new one. And when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, he's going to put a temple where all people can worship him. He says, one day, the temple that I'm going to do, the temple I'm going to build is going to be better than anything any man could imagine. And you are working towards that now. What we do today, if we're doing it for God and we're doing it for eternity, it's never insignificant. Jesus said that while the temple that, they, that they're building, one day he goes, Jesus even said, he goes, this temple's gonna be destroyed but in three days be built again. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of God that was going to be built through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Through what he did on the cross, through him dying on the cross for our sins and being buried and then rising again three days later to redeem us to God the Father. He said, I'm going to build a better temple than even that what they can do. And that temple lives inside of his children today. See, we are the temple of God. God lives and abides inside of us. And we are building his kingdom and his temple that will one day be filled with people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. So God says, take courage, be strong, and get busy building his kingdom. So they were resenting the provision of God. Number three, they were neglecting the worship of God. So again... Haggai comes, 18 years, they haven't been doing anything. He preaches at them, they get busy. He leaves, comes back a month later, they're still not working. He preaches at them, they get busy again. He comes back two months after that. So it's three months since he originally got them going, and he comes back, and they're still working, but it's not, they're not working the way he, he, they should be. They're working on the temple, but they had the wrong motives behind it. See, they thought that by simply doing the work of God, that they would be made right with God. See, they thought contact with the temple would make them holy in God's eyes, even though they were still living in sin. Look, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Look at verse number 11 in chapter 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, so Haggai is going to the priests here. He's not talking to Zerubbabel and Joshua. He's talking to the priests of God, the people who know the law the best. It says, and ask the law, saying, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do, do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. So here's, here's a scenario. There's a priest, and they, they, they did have little you know, like pockets in the hems of their garments or pockets in their, their, their holy vesti- vestments to hold stuff in. He goes, if you take a piece of holy meat. Now, what is holy meat? Holy meat is bacon. Amen? No. Holy meat was meat that had been sanctified and sacrificed to God. During this time, they would sanctify the meat. They would put their hands on it and basically put, uh, put their sin on the meat. And then they would sacrifice it. Once they sacrificed it and burned it in the altar, it became sanctified meat. And the priests could eat it. That's how they ate. They would, after the meat had been sacrificed, they would dig in and get whatever they could. And that was their meal. And that was holy meat. So he goes, if you take a piece of sanctified holy meat and you go and touch some bread, you're going to make yourself a sandwich. Is that bread holy? Even if you put the meat on the bread, is that bread holy? If you're touching holy meat and you you touch a glass, does that make the glass holy? Does that make your drink holy? If you have something holy and you touch something else, does that something else become holy? And the priests say, no, that's not how it works. The holiness of God isn't transferred by touch. Then look what he asked in the second, the next verse. Then said Haggai, if one is unclean by a dead body and touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So according to the law of Moses, if someone had touched an unclean thing, uh, a dead body was considered an unclean thing. Uh, of course, pigs and things were considered unclean things. So he goes, so if you have something holy or you touch something holy and then you touch something else, that something else doesn't become holy. But if you touch something unclean and then touch something else, even if that something else is holy, that becomes unclean. Your sin makes whatever you're doing, even what you're doing for God, makes it sin. He doesn't, see, here's what, what Haggai is saying. You're doing the work. You're building the temple. You're serving God. But your life is still wrapped up in sin, and you're not right with God. And so everything you're doing for God is pointless. It's, it's, it's worthless. It, it means nothing because you think the work of God makes you clean And that's not what makes you clean. See, they were obeying God by doing his work, but they were unclean because they still had sin in their lives. Because you think the work's making you clean, but really what's happening is your sin is making the work sinful work. Here's what God's telling us. You can do all the right actions and not make a difference at all for God if your heart isn't right with God. You can come to church You can sing the songs. You can do your devotions. You can give your money. You can even preach the message and have no eternal significance if you're not right with God. If you have unconfessed and unrepentant sin 
in your life. If you're doing it all to look good to God or look good to others, but you're not loving like Jesus and you're not serving others like Jesus, what you're doing is pointless. See, God doesn't want your actions. God wants your heart. And if God has your heart, your actions will follow and your actions will bring him glory. Yeah, they were working, but they were doing it out of obligation and to make themselves look good. They'd given up serving God for 18 years and focused on building their own houses and their own lives. Now they're building God's house, but their heart is still focused on themselves. Look at verse number 15. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, uh, from the time before stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. First of all, let's go back to uh, 14. Then answered Haggai and said, So is the people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten, when one came to the press fat, for to withdraw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you in the blasting of the mildew, and with the hail, and all the labors of of your hands yet turn not to me, saith the Lord. So here's here's what, what that all says. I know it's like, oh, what's this press fat and what's this mildew? Here's what Haggai is saying. Before you had, when you had given up serving God and you were served, those 18 years, you had given up building the temple of God and you were just building your own life, you were miserable. You never had enough. You would never have enough meat. You never had enough, have had water. You never had what you, tr you were trying to get it. You were trying to build it. You were trying to get what you needed and what you wanted, but you had nothing. You lived insignificant, pointless, frustrated lives. You would have been fine if you had just served God. And now he says, and now you're serving God and you're, you're really not putting your heart into it because you still don't have what you think you deserve. You're, you're doing the work, but you're, you're still living in sin and not enjoying the presence of God because it didn't work out the way you wanted to. You started building the temple, and guess what? Rain didn't come, and the, the crops didn't spring up all of a sudden. But look what he says in verse 18. Consider now from this day forward and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even after the, uh, that the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yet brought forth from this day, uh, from this day, I will bless you. So here's what he says after that. He goes, look, you live miserable lives and you think that now when you started serving God, everything should turn around, but your heart's not in it. And so nothing's happening and you're getting frustrated by that. But here's the thing. The seed's not in the barn, it's in the ground. But it takes time to grow. The, the vines aren't full of grapes yet, but they're, they're still growing. The olive trees haven't brought you a great you know, production yet, but they're, they're still growing. And God wants to bless you. God wants the crops to come forth. God wants the vines to be full. God wants the olive trees to produce. He, he wants to bless you, but if your heart's not right with him, he can't. The time for fruit bearing is coming, and God wants to bless them. He wants to use them but they have to have the right heart 
to do that. He's saying it may not seem like things are changing, but be faithful to God and he will bless you because he wants to bless you, but he can't if you're living for yourself. Now, while we serve God, it will seem like things aren't going the way that we want them to. So we can be tempted to give up on God. We may still go through the motions of going to church and looking the part, but our hearts are more concerned with us. God wants us completely devoted to Him and His kingdom, even when things don't seem to be going our way. He's always faithful. He always keeps His promise. He is always with us and for us. We have to stay faithful to Him. So here's the fourth thing. First of all, they were neglecting the worship of God. And the fourth thing they were doing was they were forgetting the promises of God. Look at verse number uh, 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai and the four and 20th day of the month saying, this, this, this is right after that last message. So he didn't wait a month. He immediately starts preaching again. Uh, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shittial, saith the Lord, and will make thee a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, one of the reasons that Israel was so slack in the work of God. They gave up for 18 years and they gave up after a few weeks and then they, they were doing it but their heart wasn't in it, is they had focused on themselves so much that they forgot the promises of God. And it's easy to understand why. Yeah, they're home. They're back in Jerusalem. They have a king, Zerubbabel. He is the governor, but he is the king of Israel. He is in the line of David. He's supposed to be the king. And they have Zerubbabel. But they're still under Persian rule. He's not really the king. He's just a figurehead. They're, they're, so they're still under Persian rule. The temple was never going to be as good as it had been. So what's the point? And God was trying, God is telling them that He's not trying to rebuild the Jewish nation or rebuild the temple to its former glory. He was preparing them for his future kingdom. The kingdom that he would eventually bring would be greater than anything that they or anyone else could ever imagine. See, his ultimate kingdom is not going to last for 70 years or 1,000 years. His ultimate kingdom would last for eternity. And it would be filled with people from every corner of the earth. And God was looking forward to that day, the day that he would fix everything that was broken and restore the world to the way it was in the beginning. And so he's telling Zerubbabel, look, don't get discouraged because you're not really the king or don't get discouraged because the temple is not as great as it used to be because that's not the point. The point is I am preparing you for a future kingdom that's going to outshine anything you could ever imagine. And that is the day that we're still waiting on. We're still, he is still building his kingdom through his church and through his children. And all, it is all brought by the death 
the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Through his sacrifice, he is building an eternal kingdom. One that will never be destroyed. One that will never fade away. And one that will bring ultimate peace and joy to the world for his children. But that's a ways away. And while we wait, we can get discouraged. And instead, so we, to keep from getting discouraged, God says, focus on the promises of God. The promise that he is preparing a place for us to live in his presence for all of eternity. The promise that he is going to wipe away all tears one day, that he is going to remove all pain, that he's going to restore everything that was broken through him. That's our motivation. That's our promise. That's our purpose. And that's what should keep us going even when it doesn't seem relevant. See, God, he takes small, imperfect things and he builds them into a place for his glory. God uses broken and flawed people to build his kingdom that will last forever and that will bring peace to all who accept his gift of salvation. So wherever God has placed you and whatever God has asked you to do in his kingdom is more important than you could ever imagine. We are doing more than trying to build a church. We're building his kingdom for his glory and for the salvation of all. Let's not neglect his work. Let's not resent his provision. Let's not ignore his worship or let's not forget his promise. As Haggai says, let's have courage and get busy serving God.